0: The good news is that as we went back into Iraq, um, say in 2013 and so after the advent of ISIS, that there was enough of the Iraqi institutions still there that all we needed to do was, again, advise and assist, train and equip and enable, particularly in the military side, and by and large, with certainly some ex- expertise provided, but by and large, the Iraqis were able to do what was necessary. The same has generally been true uh, in Afghanistan, and to a lesser degree in some of the other locations where we have had sustained commitments of host nation forces.
1: This is the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andra Gonuella. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. And today we're so honored to have General David Petraeus on the podcast. Now, just a brief background for those who may not be familiar with his distinguished career. General Petraeus served for over 37 years in the U.S. Army and is among the most prominent military figures in the post-9/11 era. His tours have taken him around the world, and his military career culminated in six consecutive commands as a general officer, five of which were in combat. These included commanding coalition forces in Iraq during the surge, commanding coalition forces in Afghanistan and serving as CENTCOM commander, or the commander of Central Command. After retiring from the military, General Petraeus served as CIA director, and since leaving government, General Petraeus has taught at many leading universities and has served on the boards of corporations and non-government organizations. General Petraeus is also a partner at KKR and chairman of the KKR Global Institute. He is widely published and regularly makes media and television appearances, including on my favorite CNBC. I could certainly go on, General, but sir, it's an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast, and thank you so much for joining
0: us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much, General. So uh, let's kind of dive right in. As Andre mentioned, you, in addition to serving in the U.S. Army uh, for over three decades, you also served as CIA director. Under President Obama, so what was this transition like for you, right from your military experience into the CIA, um, and how did you approach leading the
0: agency? Well, it was a wonderful transition because it was one that went from one wonderful institution to another. Uh, obviously, taking the uniform off for the last time was a big deal. Um, I'd spent 37 years uh, in uniform. If uh, you have a mission this larger in self you have a community of others who are also intent on serving missions larger than self. And you have a sense of identity that comes literally from the uniform and all the badges and decorations and medals and so forth that are on it. Uh, But the CIA is an equally uh, extraordinary organization, Uh, a bit more quiet, needless to say about what it does, uh, but very much a mission that is larger than self, a phenomenal community. that pursues that mission uh, and a tremendous sense of identity. Uh, the agency, by and large, I think, is seen as the finest global intelligence organization in the world. And of course, much has been made of it in in movie and books and all the rest of that. So it was going from one group of very dedicated professionals who were a bit more visible to another group of equally dedicated professionals who were not as visible um, and. It was just a privilege to uh, lead in both of those institutions and to be the director of the CIA. Uh, The key when I went to the agency was to ensure that I wasn't bringing all of my military folks along with me, nor staying in uniform. And the president and I had discussed this uh, when we discussed the possibility of me being nominated to be the director. And I noted then. Uh, What I'd already concluded would be the way to demonstrate uh, that I was again leaving the military behind was by retiring uh, before assuming the position of director of the CIA, which which is not something that all generals who have served as the director have done. There's a history, in fact, a a very recent one uh, who continued to serve for part of his time, then retired and served out the the remainder of his time uh, as a civilian, if you will. So I retired, and then I brought no one with me. And, I, and, you know, this is, I'm someone who was fairly famous for having a constellation of superstars uh, around me to the extent that I could assemble them. Um, and, you know, we regularly kept track of where all the Rhodes scholars and Marshall scholars and other really exceptional people were in the military, the thinkers. And we used to try to you know, we, our view was that they were either working for us, they had worked for us, that they were going to work for us. Um, but I didn't bring anyone with me whatsoever. And ultimately, the only military person that was brought on uh, was a couple months later when the deputy director asked who was the guy who was my transition uh, lead from the military to the agency. I had a, a Navy captain who served in that purpose. And they said, you know, he was really super. And uh, no, by the way, wasn't he your legislative liaison at Central Command and then in Afghanistan? And we need a new legislative liaison. um, Why don't we bring him in for that? Would you be amenable to that? Um, Again, that was their idea, not mine. And so I was very happy to see that happen. But that's how I sought to approach uh, the transition to the agency, as opposed to frankly, a number of directors who brought quite a few of their own people with them, uh, in which case um, not all of those had, had a particularly happy ending.
1: And uh, well, speaking of transitions, we're currently in a presidential transition between the Trump and Biden administrations. Uh, as someone who has served several presidents in varying capacities, uh, and with that has endured many transitions, therefore, uh, what are your thoughts on the recent mass shuffle in the Defense Department?
0: Well, obviously, I don't have any insider information on what has led to the uh, firing or resignation of a handful of fairly key folks in the Department of Defense. And it's, I've seen all the speculation about whether they were, again, not sufficiently supportive or uh, opposed a particular uh, policy uh, preference perhaps having to do with the drawdown in Afghanistan, um, or again, any number of other ideas. And uh, again, very hard to say from the outside looking in. Um, I do know, what I am confident is that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the other members of the chiefs, and the combatant commanders are going to do what they have always done, which is to provide their best professional military advice. Uh, in a very non-political manner, uh, and then obviously allow the policymakers to make the uh, choice from the options that the military provides, having laid out, of course, the risk associated with the different options, which is what the military leadership is responsible for doing in our system.
1: Certainly. And, uh, you know, in a significant shuffle like this, in a transition period, uh, is this a national security risk? Uh, Do you see any message to our allies and adversaries? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I noted the other day, uh, in fact, on one of your favorite uh, channels, CNBC, in fact, uh, that General Jack Keane, when he was the commander of the Great 101st Airborne Division, when he was a two star general, and I was privileged to be. Uh, his chief of operations, plans and training at that time, uh, having earlier been a battalion commander when he was a one star in that unit. In fact, he stood next to me the day that I got shot in a freak live fire training exercise. So um, we were very close. And he is someone who has been recognized by President Trump uh, with the Presidential Medal of Freedom for what for the advice and counsel and so forth that he has provided to successive presidents since uh, retiring himself. And he used to be very clear uh, to the departing battalion and brigade commanders and principal staff officers of the 101st Airborne Division in saying, if you really love your unit, your battalion brigade or staff section, um, you will see to it that the individual who's coming in to replace you uh, is welcome in the organization well before you leave. You should leave your house with enough time for it to be repainted or whatever so that that individual can move in before he or she takes command or takes assumes the position. Um, and you even ought to move out of your office and allow your successor to get the office set up before the actual change of command, because that's the best way to ensure continuity in your unit and to enable the incoming commander who has lots of other challenges, of course, to focus on those challenges rather than on moving into a house or an office uh, or what have you. So um, it seemed to me that that, that's pretty logical uh, advice and, and, and quite wise counsel. And it seems to me that it's appropriate in this case as well. We know from the 9/11 Commission report, which was bipartisan, that among the factors that may have contributed to the intelligence failure leading up to 9/11 was the fact that the delay in determining the president and therefore starting the transition uh, to the the Bush presidency, Bush uh, 43, um, may have contributed to again the. Failures that uh, led to the 9/11 attacks. Um, I think there's something to that. Um, I'd I'd argue even, you know, if even if you want to continue to argue about who won, which I think is a bit beyond conclusive at this point, but certainly has not yet been certified. uh, But you can still get on with lots of the transition tasks, uh, such as allowing the president-elect to receive the presidential daily brief, uh, allowing. Uh, information to be shared with the president-elect's coronavirus task force, etc., etc. I mean, we're in a time of war right now, albeit a war against a pandemic that has claimed more lives than uh, Vietnam, the Gulf War, Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then some, perhaps twice as many as all of those at this point in time, uh, and is back in a resurgent mode uh, in a very horrific manner Um, when you are losing well over a 1,000 citizens per day. uh, That is exceedingly serious. And the sheer numbers that we're seeing of positive tests um, indicates that we're tragically going to see more and more uh, hospitalized and die. So again, it seems to me that it's more than time to get on with that process. Even if people want to continue to uh, again pursue legal cases, uh, but uh, it, it is time, I think, to enable the transition to go forward, even as the arguing continues.
2: Yeah, I think there's no disputing that, General. But let's uh, let's kind of shift now and talk about U.S. defense policy in the Middle East, something you have a great deal of experience in. Um, and so, how would you characterize the current state? Of US defense policy in the Middle East under the Trump administration. And now that we have the incoming Biden administration, do you see any uh, significant changes under a president like Biden?
0: Well, what's interesting is that you see the current administration and the incoming administration uh, sharing the objective of wanting to end endless wars. Now, I obviously understand that very deeply. I mean, no one understands the desire to end endless wars more than those who have fought them, and particularly, frankly, those who had the privilege of commanding them at the height in Iraq and Afghanistan, as I did, and therefore wrote more letters of condolence to America's mothers and fathers than any other commander in those theaters. Um, That said, uh, I think we have learned the hard way uh, when we pulled all of our combat forces out of Iraq, Uh, and said, we have ended the war in Iraq. And, you know, I would want to raise my hand and say, excuse me, we haven't ended the war in Iraq, we have ended our involvement in the war in Iraq, the war continues. And if it doesn't go well, and I fear it may not, we may have to go back in. And of course, we did have to go back in in that case. So this underscores the importance of doing what the Biden administration Uh, or the incoming administration has argued is necessary, which is not just to end endless wars, but to do so responsibly. Now, that's much more difficult, frankly, than it sounds as a campaign slogan. Uh, We have dramatically drawn down the levels of commitment that we have in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and a variety of other places where our forces are continuing to support, support host nation elements. Uh, in combating the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, uh, and a variety of other extremist elements, some connected with Al-Qaeda or ISIS affiliates. Um, but what we should have learned by this point in time, I think, uh, is that what is needed is a sustained commitment that is sustainable, and sustainability is measured in terms of blood and treasure. And I, I tend to think that what we have reached in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan is quite sustainable. Um, Again, think of 165,000 American men and women in uniform in Iraq during the surge with tens of thousands of additional coalition forces when I was privileged to command that, and we're down well below 5,000. In fact, I think probably more in the mid-3,000s. Syria, another... 1,500, couple thousand, whatever, however you want to count what we have there, Um, probably below 5,000 at this point in Afghanistan, having had 100,000 American men and women and 50,000 more NATO and non-NATO coalition forces when I was privileged to command there. These are very significant reductions. You can argue that perhaps we may have gone too far in Afghanistan, given the deterioration of the security situation. But the fact is, we have figured out through the use of this extraordinary constellation of drones that we have uh, produced uh, in the years, really, even since uh, we were engaged in the surge in Iraq, where we just started to glimpse the possibilities of very dense numbers of those over certain areas. Um, And that enables us to advise and assist, to train and equip and to enable Host nation forces in a way that was just unthinkable uh, previously. And you add to that the fusion of intelligence that we do uniquely well uh, and a few other uh, attributes that we bring uh, in enablers, and you've got a very, very sustainable, sustained commitment. So, uh, in my view, I think a new administration will come in, hopefully, take a look at where we are and say, you know, that's not all that bad considering where we were at the height of involvement in the Obama administration, or say in Iraq, the Bush administration, or even in the Obama administration, which inherited still somewhere around 135,000 American men and women in uniform when they came into office in Iraq. So um, again, that would be my hope. Now, clearly there's a number of other challenges uh, in the Middle East region. Principle one is of course, Iran, uh, which wants to solidify its control of the Shia Crescent that stretches from Iran through Iraq, Syria, and down into southern Lebanon and Hezbollah. Uh, they'd like to Lebanonize Iraq and also Syria. In other words, to do what they have done in Lebanon, where you have a powerful militia in the streets and a powerful voting, voting bloc in the parliament, they'd like to do the same in Iraq. And they have a number of Iranian-supported Iraqi militias there. And they have a pretty good bloc in the parliament, though not anywhere near as solid or loyal as what they have with Hezbollah uh, in its political form in Beirut. Uh, But those are among their aspirations. Uh, And of course, they have resumed nuclear activities uh, in the wake of the US withdrawing uh, from the Iran nuclear deal and imposing, reimposing uh, quite substantial sanctions. And they have continued to improve their missile capabilities, in addition to other malign activities uh, in the region, in in places, again, Syria, as well as Iraq, Yemen, uh, and a handful of others uh, in that region, and and even beyond. So that is a very pressing threat. Uh, Clearly, they cannot be allowed to approach a point from which they could leap, make a leap to a true nuclear capability. And undoubtedly, the Biden administration will come in uh, intent on trying to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal that was a centerpiece of the foreign policy achievements of the Obama-Biden administration. Whether Iran will be amenable to that, I think, is an open question. Uh, And beyond that, the the shortcomings of the deal, which had a number of positives, I mean, it did eliminate all the medium-enriched uranium, 99% of the low-enriched Ended the plutonium path to a bomb, turned the deeply buried, hardened uh, site near Gom uh, into at Fordo uh, into a research facility, etc., and has a pretty good uh, system of allowing inspection and verification. A good regime, um, certainly also accompanied by allowing Iran to make very substantial amounts of money by returning to the to energy markets and and to global. Uh, the global economy. Uh, but the challenge with that deal was always that there were certain end dates beyond which the governing principle would be the non-proliferation uh, treaty uh, and and a very uncertain Iranian commitment to that. Uh, and those end dates are a lot closer now than they were, uh, obviously, when uh, the Trump administration took office nearly four years ago. So there has to be some attention to those and whether you can extend them uh, in bringing Iran back into that nuclear arrangement. And again, I think that's a very open question, and we'll see whether that proves possible or not.
1: Certainly, sir. And I think it's very interesting you note, of course, Iran being our primary challenge in the region. We recently were privileged to have General McKenzie on from CENTCOM, and he certainly the, uh, the exact same sentiments. And uh, now, sort of going a bit into your own experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, what was the role of the U.S. military in state-building in those two countries, and what were the key impediments to bring stability to both Iraq and Afghanistan?
0: Well, let me take the first one first, and then you can ask the second one again. Um, the military's role was very, very substantial. Um, in the very beginning, as an example, so following the bombing of the UN compound in Baghdad and the death of international diplomat Sergio uh, de Mello, which was just a tragic loss in so many different ways, um, all the non-governmental organizations and most of the international organizations that we had hoped would come back to Iraq and help. Uh, in the way that they had in, say, in in Afghanistan or in Bosnia or Kosovo or other or Haiti or other places where many of us had served, that did not prove to be the case. Uh, It took some time, frankly, even to get the State Department and AID and other civilians uh, on the ground during the coalition provisional uh, authority days. An embassy was then established. Uh, But over time, when we ramped up very substantially, especially during the surge, the numbers of uh, U.S. brigade combat teams and division headquarters and so forth, the demand for the provincial reconstruction teams, which in Iraq were to be led and populated by uh, civilians, again, principally from state AID and some of the other executive branch departments, uh, those positions just could not be filled. And so, what was done was Secretary Gates, then the defense secretary, uh, put out requirements through the military sourcing system uh, to identify, in particular, reservists who had the capabilities or the experiences that we were seeking uh, from the civilian agencies, but which they couldn't provide. Brought a lot of those on active duty, and then, frankly, took others that just had an inclination or the seeming capability for doing what was necessary and put them in civilian clothes. And that's how we filled out the provincial reconstruction teams. And I say that noting that there were some really heroic diplomats, especially retired ambassadors that came back on active duty uh, just to serve in those positions and did superb work. But again, never enough of them. Um, The same was true in Afghanistan. Again, the military could mobilize very considerable forces, uh, but state and AID, and again, the other organizations that were to provide ones and twos to these different provincial reconstruction teams uh, were very, very difficult to source. Afghanistan, in fact, the PRTs are much more heavily populated with military. It's designed that way. So that was a difference. So uh, in Iraq... Uh, In particular, from the very beginning, we, the military, had to pursue the so-called stability components of a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, which we recognize was necessary, keeping in mind that just like any campaign, uh, a counterinsurgency campaign is some mix of offensive operations, defensive operations, and stability operations. And what makes a counterinsurgency campaign different is the amount of effort put into the stability operations. So that once you have achieved security in an area, the way you solidify it is by these nation-building stability operations. It's by restoring basic services initially. It's repairing damaged infrastructure. It's getting basic health services and schools and markets. Reopened. It's it's getting the electricity flowing and water uh, purification programs and all the rest of this. You can imagine every aspect of it. Some of us had done this before. Um, I had watched this in Central America. I'd done it as the United Nations chief of operations, not the U.S. for the UN force in Haiti, which was a very heavy nation building uh, effort. I did it for over a year in in, in Bosnia as well. And watched it in some other places and studied it and read about it and even wrote a dissertation about the US military and the lessons of Vietnam. So, some of us, I think, sort of had in mind a template for this. I had in mind a very well developed civil military plan from Bosnia. The problem was that we didn't have any civil in the civil military plan in Iraq, so we did it ourselves. And so, we assigned uh, units to every organization that comprised the government of, say, Nanoa province, and for, of which Mosul was the capital, where we spent the first year uh, in Iraq when I was commander of the 101st Airborne Division. Um, the medical hospital that we had partnered with the local hospital. The uh, <clears throat> We had a signal battalion that partnered with the Ministry of Telecommunications, uh, and on and on. There were a lot of logical pairings. And then in some cases where we didn't have that, Uh, What we did is we took some elements from the civil affairs battalions that we had and then augmented them. For example, the aviation, one of the aviation brigade headquarters was given responsibility for reestablishing Mosul University, which was a university of of 19 or 20 colleges. And I think it was close to 30,000 students. So this is no trivial task, but they had all of the assets that you might need for this um, or could hire them with the authorities that they had and the funding that we were able to provide to them. So that's how we went about it. And that continued for a number of years, gradually over time, uh, by the time of the surge, we had a very well-developed U.S. Embassy. Some of the uh, non-governmental organizations and international organizations had come back. The UN was reestablished and were helping out in certain respects, but in many of the areas that were completely out of control, like Anbar province, uh, which included Fallujah and Ramadi west of Baghdad, again, we largely had to do what was necessary uh, in that realm of the nation building, which also included, in addition to the tasks that I described earlier, reconciliation, uh, again, with the rank and file of the insurgents and the rank and file of the Shia militia, even as we pursued the irreconcilables Relentlessly, the leaders of the insurgents, Al Qaeda, and the Shia militia. Um, And then also a host of other tasks involving getting governance going again, because the government in Baghdad just didn't have the capability to support uh, the provincial governments, the district governments, and all the rest of that. So we did a great deal of that uh, over the years as well. The good news is that as we went back into Iraq, Um, say, in 2013 and so after the advent of ISIS, that there was enough of the Iraqi institutions still there that all we needed to do was, again, advise and assist, train and equip and enable, particularly in the military side, and by and large, with certainly some expertise uh, provided, but by and large, the Iraqis were able to do what was necessary. The same has generally been true uh, in Afghanistan, and to a lesser degree in some of the other locations where we have had sustained commitments of host nation forces.
2: So, so General, thank you for that. There are certainly many, many challenges to nation building, uh, and and one of them is domestic uh, contravention of efforts. So, so in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly these are two very different countries with domestic political situations that that very widely, uh, but were the U.S. efforts contravened by political stakeholders on the ground in these countries? And if so, what did that look like?
0: Well, there were innumerable challenges to efforts to do nation building, whether it was done by civil or military or international or non-governmental organizations. Um, There are always people who are seeking to influence how assistance is provided, needless to say, to get it for their themselves or their businesses or their tribe or their district, or probably, you know, you name it. Um, and frankly, there is also um, enormous questioning at home, understandably. Um, President Obama famously used to say, we need to do nation building at home, not nation building abroad. Ironically, uh, President Bush was elected in part Um, when, because he questioned the Clinton administration's activities in Bosnia, where they used to say that, you know, the 82nd Airborne Division shouldn't be escorting kids to the school bus in the morning or something like that, uh, as had to be done, I guess, in Kosovo for some period of time. Um, In any event, again, all of that is understandable. And needless to say, you get the Uh, host nation leadership that you get. Um, We should not be in the business of picking and choosing. Um, You know, there's a long history of uh, folks that have been toppled, and and the ramifications of that can be pretty substantial. Um, And you have to do the best you can with what you have. Uh, And there are challenges. Um, But again, welcome to the National Football League. Uh, and you know those of us who are privileged to lead these endeavors knew what we were getting ourselves into uh, for the most part uh, but we certainly and we certainly learned some lessons some hard lessons along the way without question
1: and You know, while we're talking about domestic contraventions by those political actors, I think something to keep in mind is certainly, like, perhaps a foreign intervention, right? Uh, Whether implicit or explicit. And in that regard, I wanted to ask specifically about Pakistan and Afghanistan. So, uh, did Pakistan's sheltering of the Taliban harm our operations in Afghanistan?
0: Clearly, the fact that the Taliban had a sanctuary... Uh, in a neighboring country, in Pakistan, in Balochistan province, Um, you know, there's a reason the leadership of the Taliban was called the Quetta Shuret, because it was located near Quetta, the capital of Balochistan province in Pakistan. And certainly the fact that the leadership of that insurgent organization, arguably in some cases, urging on the extreme. Uh, And the fact that the Haqqani Network or Haqqani Taliban, another very uh, violent organization, had a sanctuary in north of Aziristan, that Al-Qaeda to some degree had a sanctuary, uh, the Islamic State, uh, the Pakistani Taliban, etc. Now, not all of these necessarily explicitly allowed, but undeniably there. The fact that they are able to harbor out of reach, for the most part, there are some exceptions that will be well known that have all been publicly reported, where individuals were brought to justice uh, in Pakistan, not the least of whom was Osama bin Laden uh, near the end of my time in uh, Kabul. But the fact that they had that sanctuary made that war enormously more difficult. very, very qualitatively different from that in Iraq, as an example. Uh, Certainly in Iraq, there were uh, would be suicide bombers that were uh, enabled to travel through Syria into Iraq, probably 115 or so per month in the beginning of the surge down to under 10 by the end. Uh, The fact that the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, Quds Force, supported Shia militia and trained them on Iranian soil to a degree and guided them and funded and equipped and so forth them uh, in Iraq. I mean, those weren't trivial, but it was nothing like the sanctuary that the major insurgent and extremist groups that have made life so difficult for Afghan citizens, uh, Afghan security forces and coalition forces have had in Pakistan. Hugely frustrating, uh, something, you know, discussed repeatedly with our Pakistani counterparts. At times, we had a sense that they might be going after uh, those organizations on the ground, uh, as in the case, for example, of 2009, when the Pakistani army mounted a very impressive campaign against the Tariki Taliban Pakistani, which is the Pakistani Taliban, not the Afghan Taliban. And which was threatening really Islamabad from Swat Valley. And they went into the Fatah, the, FATA, the uh, federally administered tribal areas, as they were called at that time, and cleared very impressively most of them, and then sort of ground to a halt right before they got into the areas where the Haqqani network, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, Al Qaeda, and some others were located, and never went after the Taliban down in the Quetta. Balochistan area at all. In fact, our understanding was that the Pakistani army had a very limited uh, remit in Balochistan for fear of stirring up a Balochian insurgency, and that all they would do in that province was run the staff college in Quetta City and maintain the border posts along the Afghan-Iraq, or the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border.
2: Thank you, General. So, you know, you mentioned counterinsurgency, and that, of course, is is vital uh, to U.S. strategy in the Middle East. It was vital in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it still is. But I think for many of our listeners, they may not have a full picture of what counterinsurgency is. And so, for the benefit of us and them, uh, could could you possibly kind of give us a rundown on what counterinsurgency is? And also, because you're central to the production of the counterinsurgency field manual. Uh, Could you kind of uh, help us understand what it sought to do and how it was put together?
0: Well, counterinsurgency is again a name of a campaign, um, along with other campaigns uh, that run the gamut from very low end to very high end. And it's probably somewhere in the middle to high, depending on the intensity of the fighting in the counterinsurgency campaign. Like any campaign, Uh, It is a mix of offensive, defensive, and stability operations. And what distinguishes it from, say, major combat operations or peacekeeping combat operations being higher on the spectrum of warfare or conflict and peacekeeping on the lower end, what distinguishes it uh, is the fact that you are still generally conducting substantial offensive operations certainly protecting the force defensive operations and the population. uh, And you are conducting very robust stability operations. And stability is the term for everything other than the military activities. Uh, It is the restoration of basic services, local governance, grievance mechanisms, infrastructure repair, uh, getting the schools, health clinics, uh, economies, Uh, all of that going again uh, in what usually is a fairly damaged uh, circumstance because you've had a fair amount of of warfare and perhaps some other challenges prior to that, which which often lead to the kind of insurgency or extremist activity that one is combating. Uh, You generally want to conduct it Uh, in support of host nation forces. Um, There is usually some kind of ideological component, though not always in the case of the counterinsurgencies that we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, This was more about uh, Islamist extremism against uh, a more moderate government, although certainly the Afghan government is very Islamic. Uh, it literally is the government of the Islamic Republic of, of Afghanistan. Is its title. So that's the way to think about it. And what you have to recognize in this kind of operation, as opposed to say an Operation Desert Storm, which is out in the middle of the desert, there's no population. It's not a war among the people, which counterinsurgency often is, uh, and the enemy doesn't wear uniforms and fly flags normally, unless it's the Islamic State, which at that point in time, when we helped the Iraqis defeat it, was really more of an army than an insurgency and terrorist groups. But Operation Desert Storm was basically military against military, Uh, again, not in urban areas, uh, out in the open, uh, almost sent from central casting for the US military to fight, frankly. And again, there was no stability component to that, really. We certainly helped the Kuwaitis reestablish their uh, repair, their damage and all the rest of that. But they had more than enough money and know-how and contractors and everyone else to do that so that the military and uh, even the civilian agencies didn't have to get overly involved uh, in that. So that's how I would lay out. <clears throat> again, what a counterinsurgency campaign is, where you're literally seeking to counter insurgent activity uh, that, again, is typically ideologically uh, inspired, or perhaps in some cases, say, uh, in Latin America, where you find uh, the insurgents that are also narco trafficantes or criminal cartels or or what have you. Um, we Recognized very clearly when I was a three-star general in Iraq, having been there for the invasion as a two-star division commander. then went back to establish the multinational security transition command, the so-called train and equip mission, which was to help rebuild every aspect of uh, the Iraqi military and the Iraqi Ministry of Interior, Ministry of Defense, and Interior, and Ministry of Interior, all the way up to and including the ministries, but all the way down to the individual policemen, border guard. Soldier, sailor, airman, marine, and everything in between, and all the institutional elements as well. And we recognized that the US Army and actually the US Marine Corps, and Jim Mattis was my counterpart when I came home for the three star tour in the United States, during which we drafted the counterinsurgency field manual and published it faster than any other manual in history in less than a year. And that became the intellectual foundation. Uh, that we built on to conduct the surge in Iraq. And I've often noted that the surge that mattered most was not the surge of forces. It was the surge of ideas, the change in strategy. And the ideas were captured in this counterinsurgency field manual, which we sought to be fairly general in nature. So it was not specific to Iraq or Afghanistan and it was fairly high level, but it did try to capture the lessons learned in the counterinsurgency operations of recent, say, decades, going back to the post-World War II time time frame, uh, and all the way through to the present, including our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then we overhauled every aspect of how we prepared our soldiers, our units, our leaders, uh, our equipment, our forces, everything, the training, all of the year-long preparation, the so-called road to to combat, or road to deployment, uh, so that when forces arrived in Iraq or Afghanistan, they had the right approach and understood what it was necessary to do uh, in these very challenging endeavors. You know, I have fought in conventional combat, if you will, Briefly, if you will, maybe a few weeks during the fight to Baghdad, but they were fairly intense weeks. And then years in counterinsurgency operations. And in some respects, now, certainly we weren't fighting a peer or even a near peer competitor in the fight to Baghdad. But in some respects, that's pretty straightforward. The enemy generally wears a uniform, although they started taking it off after a while. (laughs) They're somewhat organized. and if you have a problem, you blow it up. Uh, and of course, it's much, much more complex in certain respects, uh, fighting an insurgency, which is again, warfare among the people. And the, a big distinction about insurgency and counterinsurgency operations is that the human terrain is the decisive terrain. That's not to say that the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan are trivial. Uh, or the weather, or the deserts, or the dense foliage along the Tigris and Euphrates uh, in Iraq are, are trivial. But at the end of the day, it's about the people. And you are trying to win the so-called hearts and minds. What you're tra- trying to do is get the people to support you and reject the insurgents or extremists, and ultimately to transfer that support to the host nation government, to that of the new Iraq, Uh, so that we can gradually hand off tasks to Iraqi security forces and institutions and gradually draw down and ultimately, of course, uh, remove the bulk of our forces. So that's the concept. And that was the genesis of the field manual that we we wrote when I was back in the States for a 15-month period between the three and four-star tours in Iraq, the four-star tour, of course, being the surge.
1: Sir, before we wrap up the interview, uh, I mean, we're now seeing this return to great power conflict as, I guess, our predominant national security challenge. And we've touched upon your experiences in the Middle East and US defense policy for the region. Uh, Russia, of course, is a notable actor in the Middle East now, and it's become increasingly assertive in recent years, uh, particularly in Syria, and now we're seeing it in Afghanistan. Uh, as the U.S. draws down its forces and its presence in the region, do you see Russia filling this void? Do you see other regional actors or other, perhaps, great powers like perhaps even China taking this place and filling this void?
0: Well, I think any time you leave a void, um, someone may seek to fill it, and it may or may not be the the preferred someone. Um, Russia certainly has become. resurgent great power. Uh, It has been very active in Syria, It basically prevented the toppling of Bashar al-Assad by opposition forces at a time when he was teetering despite the support of the Iranians and uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, their proxy force. Uh, They got involved in in Libya. Uh, More recently, they've been involved in uh, brokering the deal over Naborno-Karabakh. Uh, they invaded Georgia, they invaded, uh, parts of Georgia, parts of, uh, Ukraine and so forth. So they are very much, um, seeking to stride the world stage again, uh, led by someone who believes truly that the, as he has said publicly, the worst day of the 20th century was that which saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then you obviously see the unprecedented rise of China, a country that has achieved in 41 years economic growth that's never, ever been seen before in history uh, and has been accompanied by a rebuilding and now to a very impressive modern uh, military and also the other components of national power and playing a bigger role as is to be expected. Uh, And a situation in which you have um, China emerging certainly as the major strategic rival uh, to the U.S. and and the West, I would argue, but also, you know, the U.S. biggest trading partner, at least prior to the uh, tariffs and so forth. So it's not the Cold War by any means. Um, you know, We did no trading of any substance with the Soviet Union during the Cold War days. Um, but clearly there are points of very significant uh, difference, but also areas of very significant common interest, um, whether again it be trade, uh, climate, uh, a variety of other topics. And that is, a, that is the most important relationship in the world. Um, rightly, the focus should shift, uh, rebalance, not pivot. You don't pivot away from the Middle East. You still have to stay focused on activities there, but at a much lower level. And as I said, a sustainable, sustained commitment would be the right approach, I believe. But clearly, the focus has to be, the main effort has to be that which is contained in the U.S.-China relationship, which is again not just the most important relationship in the world; it's arguably more important than all the other relationships uh, almost put together. And ideally, would be a relationship uh, that is also pursued by the United States with its partners and allies around the the world, a, a direction which I'm confident a Biden administration. Uh, will seek to go, so that has to be the focus. There needs to be enormous effort to ensure that there is no strategic miscalculation, uh, that the elements of deterrence, capability, an adversary's perception of capability and will, uh, are present uh, when it comes to any of the the interests where there are indeed uh, actual or potential differences. And certainly, there does need to be, and there has been, more attention given to Russia, not just by the US, of course, but also by the US together with its uh, 29 or so NATO allies, which now have forces in each of the three Baltic states, many more forces in Eastern Poland, and a variety of uh, support and assistance relationships with Ukraine as well. All of that, I think, is appropriate. and the U.S. is a superpower and can keep many plates spinning. The biggest of those plates certainly is China, but there is a plate called Russia. There is a plate for the other irregular uh, wars that are going on around the world in which we need to stay engaged, albeit at sustainable levels. And that would be the approach that I would advocate.
2: Thank you, General. I'm going to try to sneak in one last question and given the name of our podcast you may, might see it coming but how many burn bags do you think you've used in your career particularly you know given you were a cia director you know we typically like to ask our uh, the folks we have on who are in the ic
0: well we used one a day at least so uh, that gives you some some sense of that and and obviously that was the case i mean you literally had a burn bag by your desk in many of the different uh, military and civilian positions that i had over the years probably starting at a fairly early time when I was maybe the aide to the chief of staff of the army or the speechwriter of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, or certainly the executive, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then on up from there.
1: And on that note, General Petraeus, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time today to talk to, to both of us. Uh, our listeners are really going to appreciate this. And, you know, again, on behalf of Ryan and myself and our entire team and our audience, thank you so much for your distinguished and honorable service uh, for our country. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Ryan and Andre. It has been a privilege to be with you.
2: To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burn Bag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast.